It's lights out and away we go. Welcome to the Pit Straight, an F1 podcast from Front Stretch. I am Jack Swansea, the host of the very podcast to which you've chosen to listen. And joining me is my co-host and a man I have just realized I've been introducing like the Stig, Front Stretch IndyCar editor, Alex Gintz. Alex, uh, how are you and have you done anything to celebrate Miami Grand Prix weekend? Nothing, nothing specifically Miami geared, but I am very excited about our new Twitter presence. <laughs> I think that's that's Miami themed enough. I, I haven't done anything <laughs> special either. Although if I if I do have the time, I might uh, make some Cuban sandwiches for dinner. This guy. <laughs> um, of course, you can follow Alex on Twitter at AlexGins1, myself at Jack Swansea, Front Stretch at Front Stretch, and now. As Alex mentioned, thanks to you, the listeners and readers of F1 content on Front Stretch, you can follow the official Front Stretch F1 and IndyCar Twitter account at FS Open Wheel. That's letter F, letter S, Open Wheel. So, Alex, Miami Grand Prix ended up being a whole lot of nothing, I would say. A uh, typical crushing victory from Max Verstappen, uh, which led. F1 turned IndyCar driver Marcus Erickson to remark on Twitter, not every race can be a classic. And, uh, well, he asked fans to consider watching IndyCar instead. After the Grand Prix completed, I think you and I both turned over to watch NASCAR's race at Kansas Speedway, which set a record for the most lead changes in a 400-mile race uh, in the history of the Cup Series and was won by a last lap pass where I think in direct comparison, F1 looks a lot less exciting. I would be tempted to agree. But Miami had an attendance of almost 300,000 people across the weekend. So clearly people, and increasingly people in the States, want to watch it. Um, Haas F1 was going to give away 10,000 free Chipotle orders if they got points, and they did. And those 10,000 free burritos vanished in less than a minute. So why our question for this week is a pretty existential one alex is f1 really that special well i suppose it means what you mean by special jack um that's that's not a question that i feel competent enough to say yes or no on because f1 is f1 in many ways it's without equal in the way it uh in the way it conducts itself, in the way it travels around the globe, in the prestige it carries in the countries it goes to. We mentioned that last week. It's something about what makes it so special is it's selective. It's not like baseball where you have 162 matches per year and you have to convince your fans to care about one in particular. But, you know, at the end of the day with the racing product, it's not at all clear to me that F1 is the pinnacle of motorsport in terms of pure racing anymore. So let's let's actually get into that phrase there, the pinnacle of motorsport, uh, because in the near constant social media flame war between fans of F1, NASCAR, and IndyCar, uh, which in which you and I have been uh, successfully, I would say, neutral, um, <laughs> there is a lot of conversation about this this phrase and if F1 is really the pinnacle of motorsport and what is meant by that. And I guess this is another sort of thing like we talked about last week going into the terminology. But I think that really the important thing to understanding this phrase is that it's the pinnacle of motorsport, singular, not the pinnacle of motorsports, 
plural, which is, of course, a linguistic difference between British English and American English. I think really the defining way to sort of like take your mind out of this, to understand the way that the rest of the world sees F1 is because the rest of the world doesn't have NASCAR. When you think about NASCAR as the most popular motorsport in the United States and just a discipline which is totally different from F1, driving stock cars on predominantly oval tracks, and I mean, just stock cars in general, totally different. And you see some crossover while Montoya came to NASCAR, but NASCAR drivers aren't trying to make it to F1. Outside of the US, outside of this country with a really strong, unique national motorsport, the entire mm -hmm. rest of the racing world is a pyramid with F1 at the top where like the the legends of even champ car when that was sort of an international series sebastian bourdais alan mcnish the sports car racing legend they all went to f1 and there were i mean rumors serious serious rumors linking sebastian loeb and MotoGP legend valentino rossi to f1 seats <laughs> so yes. like it, it's brendan hartley i think is a great example picked sort of at random out of the Toyota sports car program, then Nick DeVries coming over from Formula E. Like for the rest of the world, motorsports is always road racing with, you know, the exception of some dirt oval sprint car racing in Australia and New Zealand. And mm -hmm. of course, uh, rallying, which even then Loeb was supposed to race for Toro Rosso in 2009. So I think that is sort of where that gap is in the understanding that the pinnacle of motorsport really means it's mm -hmm. the pinnacle of international motorsport which is just sort of different from the racing the sort can, of racing structures we have in the states you know i'm really glad you brought that up because i wrote a paper uh in my undergrad comparing motorsport between the u.s and japan and as i as i researched i this had never occurred to me before because I was always more tilted towards F1 and IndyCar, even when I primarily watched NASCAR. I, I definitely cared about open wheel more as a kid. It, it's, it really can't be understated what you said about the U.S. and its motorsport culture in particular kind of exists uh, playing on its own field compared to the field that the rest of the world plays in when it comes to motorsport because the rest of the world, you know, uh, at the in the um, economic the period of economic prosperity that followed World War II, the rest of the world didn't have a surplus of horse racing tracks lying around, just <laughs> waiting to be cheaply converted into, into, into uh, <clears throat> proper racing tracks. And there definitely wasn't a fad of, um, you know, the anybody can do it type attitude that we see with dirt racing in the U.S. to this day. And God forbid we we uh, we talk about those board tracks that were that popped up through the first and half and us. Uh, third quarter of the 20th century made entirely of wood um it's so i get your point i think it pushes the question back though is is this resurgence that f1 is seeing in popularity in the u.s going to affect what americans see as their pinnacle of motorsport well i mean i I think we both kind of don't want to admit it, but the pinnacle of American motorsport is NASCAR. I, I, I will not admit that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you can't make me. <laughs> the Indy 500 is, of course, the biggest race in the world. 
Mm -hmm. um, probably the most prestigious single auto racing event to win purely by virtue of the fact that a victory at Le Mans is split between several drivers. But NASCAR is to America what F1 is to the rest of the world as far as the big one. I mean, you've got people from dirt racing sort of kind of trying to make their skill sets work in NASCAR. And of course, some of them like Kyle Larson become incredibly successful and others sort of do a little bit and then go back to dirt racing and that's fine. But that's like, I mean, that's like Sebastian Bourdais coming to F1 from American Open Wheel, Juan Montoya, Alex Zanardi. It really is a totally different ecosystem of which F1 is the top, it's the most selective, and it's it's the hardest to break into and the hardest to stay in. We did, you and I, Alex, both grew up in the States, and that's why we're, I guess, able to, to talk about NASCAR, but also we have this knowledge of F1. So how, I mean, how did you get into F1 in the first place? So it was sort of by accident through my father. Um, I became very interested back when I was five or six during the, the infant days of YouTube in the um, NASCAR crash compilations that were being uploaded back then because nothing nothing screams a good way to spend your elementary school years than watching Rusty Wallace flip down the backstretch of Daytona to Foghat um, smash hit slow ride. And my father kept telling me over time well, if you want to see cars that really look crazy when they crash, you need to look up these F1 crashes because, you know, open wheel cars fall apart during accidents comparatively much more than stock cars. And I, you know, thought, okay, dad, whatever, that's a nice spectacle, but I prefer NASCAR. And as I got older and became a bit more internationally inclined, I started to get interested in the fact that F1 was this series that hopped around the world with different people from all over and was truly international in that sense. And the attraction to the racing product, because you're right, compared to stock car racing, it is immediately um, less spectacular visually. That came with age as I went into my mid-teenage years and my attention span got a, got a bit longer and I was able to in appreciate the intricacies of driving these cars a bit more it, uh, I just started to feel that it was all around a bit more impressive than stock car racing. And while we're on the topic, that's really what led me to IndyCar is IndyCar has that nice balance between the nonstop action of oval racing that made NASCAR so appealing and the more intricate technical um, no time off, no rest during the whole event aspects of road course and street circuit racing. That, I think that, that will certainly mirror a lot of people's experiences i think who, who came to the series before drive to survive i sort of picked up f1 randomly after watching also on youtube um playthroughs of the f1 codemasters video games which I think, game i think it was f1 2016 oh no um well i i wasn't at, at the time i wasn't really playing games but i was just sort of interested pick it up i think I, I saw people you know creating content about this new f1 game that was coming out and of course i was really really into nascar at the time but through those codemasters f1 games and i think in particular f1 2020 was a really high point for the series but these games sort of 
give you this grounding in the strategy mm -hmm. and the like importance of stuff like grid penalties and the development race and like things that are kind of outwardly boring we're like okay yeah now they've got to retire the car because they want to save this power unit because they'll have to take a grid penalty in another six races if they don't like that that is inherent there's nothing sort of visually spectacular about that all of this stuff that's outwardly boring sort of builds up and snowballs into this drama and it creates this kind of like visceral spite that powers all of the f1 drivers and most of the fans where everyone's kind of bitter in a way that's you know when i say it like this kind of not all that exciting uh but that that really is that sort of like it's that thing in, in motorsports where you're even when your driver or your team is doing really poorly, you kind of have to keep watching, even though, I mean, and compared to a, a traditional sport with two teams, you know, your driver, unless you're a Max Verstappen fan, is going to lose a hell of a lot more often than they're going to win. Right, right. And the, the sort of like operatic disappointment is, is something that definitely unites racing fans across disciplines, I would say. Sure, um, absolutely. But, but F1 offers that with higher stakes because of, you know, the risk that the driver just will, you know, be fired mid-season. That doesn't happen all that much in NASCAR or IndyCar. That is a, yeah, I had not considered that until you said it. That's a very, oh man. Well, speaking of Max Verstappen and someone being fired or demoted mid-season, mid that's, we just, we just had the one-year anniversary of that, didn't we? Not the one year, oh, good Lord, the seven year anniversary of Verstappen being moved yeah. up to Red Bull. Yeah. And uh, Daniel Kvyat being demoted the first of, of several times. First. Oh, yeah. Have mercy, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's, I guess, one of the exceptions where it is something that we would see in a lot more often in NASCAR or IndyCar, where a driver who sort of has lost their shot at the big team sort of falls down the order a little bit going from as he as Kvyat did from Red Bull to Toro Rosso and then to a, a reserve driver role with Ferrari and then back up to Alfatari a little bit but usually you see a lot more like what happened with Daniel Ricciardo where he wasn't sort of moving down the order he was competing at a certain level and then McLaren decided they'd had enough and let him go before his contract was up Mm -hmm. that's i mean that's just something that doesn't really happen in other forms of racing because f1 is just more cutthroat all the time and at the same time the drivers are working with less because i mean who can win a race is almost entirely dis determined by what car the engineers built during the off season right right and what car they had to reference from the, the off season before that <laughs> <laughs> well that, that's true too yeah just you know playing the williams game running running out your days floating around 15th to 20th waiting for the new regulation change and then moving up to 14th to 20th <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i mean f1 is it is it special alex i'm going to make you answer the question again Sure. I mean, there's no denying that it, it, by many measures, F1 is 
extremely it is unique in its uh what should i say it's unique in its the weight it carries wherever it goes relative to other forms of motorsport even in the u.s we're starting to see now that um now you know today was a really really bad day for nascar to go head-to-head with f1 on f1's end but we're, we're seeing everywhere that it does command a lot of a lot of unique respect in the sense that everywhere it goes it is the be- as good as it gets in a sense but it's i i can't bring myself to say in any good form of good conscience that it's special in its racing product in terms of technological innovation international prestige um, what it can do for someone's career it's absolutely special but is it special where it matters in that racing product? I think special might be a little bit generous. Well, I I couldn't agree with you more. I also probably could not have put it any better than that. Um, oh my God, I forgot to breathe during that whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it's time to give you some 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 time to breathe and uh, wave the checkered flag spelled with a Q um, on this episode of the Pit Straight. Uh, Alex, thanks as always very much for coming on. Uh, audience, you can follow Alex at AlexGintz1 on Twitter. You can follow me at Jack Swansea. You can call, follow Front Stretch at Front Stretch. Um, check out FrontStretch.com for more great racing content and uh, our YouTube channel as well. And finally, please, uh, if you're listening, give FS Open Wheel a follow on the Twitter. Um, that's where this podcast is going to be uh every time we release it and we've got uh, a triple header coming up we're going to be bringing you an episode after each of the next three grands prix anything else you'd like to add alex on to imola on to imola autodromo enzo edino ferrari yes two two consecutive autodromes yeah yeah (laughs) well i feel about that (laughs) Well, we will leave you with that. Thank you very much for listening to The Pit Straight.